thanks for coming out tonight, everyone. Um, my name is Randall Williams, um, and I work for the Historical Society as an editor in the publications program. So I work on the magazine and some of the books we produce. Um, and the title of my talk tonight is A Nation of Sportsmen Thinking Historically About Hunting in the Post-War United States. Um, and just as a, as a, as a warning, um, the images that you'll see on the screen are pretty unrelated to the talk. Um, the museum right now has a wonderful exhibit on hunting, and as part of that, they pulled together a lot of hunting-related photographs from the archives here. So rather than assemble my own slideshow, I thought that I'd uh, rely on some of their research and, and feature some of the photographs from the collection here. So those will just sort of scroll through as I'm talking, but they're really unrelated to the subject of what I'll be discussing tonight. Um, so... <clears throat> When thinking about the past, uh, or when thinking historically, we want to recognize both change and continuity. Hunting presents certain obstacles to this type of analysis. It's one of humankind's oldest behaviors, which has really given shape to the way in which we often think and talk about it. Um, hunting's either often written about as a timeless constant in human history, or in something of a narrative of decline. Um, and the story goes something like, uh, all humans were hunters at some point in the distant past, and since the advent of agriculture 10,000 years ago, that number has been declining and declining, and it's accelerated in the, in the modern era. Um, hunting's critics like to embrace this narrative in a way, uh, or in an attempt to characterize the practice as an anachronistic relic of a bloodier past, one that is no longer relevant to contemporary life. Hunting's proponents, on the other hand, argue that the long line of hunters throughout human history stands as evidence that it is an essentially human behavior, perhaps, some argue, the most essential. For some time, it was believed that the change in diet afforded by hunting helped produce the powerful brains that are characteristic of our species. That is to say, as some have claimed, hunting is what made us human. And as thought-provoking as these big claims are, I think there are also more interesting stories to tell on a smaller scale stories that challenge sweeping pronouncements about the past and ask us to think seriously about the interplay of factors that give shape to human experiences, beliefs, and behavior at a particular moment in time. From a historian's perspective, hunting is similar in some respects to religion, and hunters themselves will tell you that, but for an entirely different set of reasons. Uh, as a historian, the key similarity that I would point out is this. Um, popularly, the history of religiosity is a tale of declension that accelerates as you get closer to the present. It's often just thought of as a simple narrative of ever-growing secularism. Um, the reality, however, is that religion, even if we limit our focus to American history, has seen revivals, it's seen great awakenings, and it's seen subtle shifts and transformations over the past few hundred years. These changes have been driven by and then further reshaped a whole host of underlying social, cultural, political, and economic factors. Similarly, the history of hunting in the United States is anything but a tale of unrelieved declension. In fact, the post-war period, what I'm going to roughly define for the sake of simplicity as 1945 to 1960, witnessed a dramatic hunting revival a great awakening, if you will, with participation rates booming in the middle decades of the 20th century. And I would argue that this post-war boom has really been overlooked as a formative period in the development of our contemporary perceptions of hunting. 
Quite a bit of what's recognizable to us each fall as we think about hunting in the United States took a more familiar form in the years following the Second World War. And so tonight's talk is something of a closer look at this particular moment in the past, which offers a chance to think about change and continuity in the history of hunting. Um, and two caveats before I, I get into it. One is that um, the turn of the century conservation movement, um, the Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, the Boone and Crockett Club, um, and some of the landmark legislation from the first few decades of the 20th century are really foundational to the story um, that I'll tell tonight. But it's a bit much to cover in one brief talk, so I'll only mention some of these uh, figures and organizations in passing. Um, by no means, however, do I intend to downplay the historical significance of that earlier period. Um, and second, much of what I'll talk about tonight is not specific to Montana. Uh, in fact, I think it's safe to say that some of the claims I'll make, um, some of the stories I'll tell, some of the trends and developments I'll describe are less representative of Montana than they are of other parts of the country. Um, but I think nonetheless it's a story that's deeply relevant to Montana's history in that it's given shape to the state's place in American culture and the American imagination over the second half of the 20th century. Um, it's helped power the state's economy, and in some cases it's led non-native Montanans to become Montanans themselves. Um, so with that said, I'll get started. Um, the end of the Second World War marked a turning point in the history of hunting in the United States. As millions of GIs returned home from tours of duty in Europe, Africa, and the Pacific, they took up hunting in record numbers, many for the first time in their lives. Post-war prosperity combined with cheap guns and cheap cars spurred millions of American men afield. Interestingly enough, articles published in nationally circulated hunting magazines both during and after the conflict anticipated this surge of interest. Outdoor Life's Arthur Graham estimated that the immediate post-war period might see as many as 22 million hunters Compared to the 7.9 million hunting licenses sold in 1940, the expected transformation was staggering. U.S. Census Bureau records, however, reveal that Graham's forecast was somewhat exaggerated, but the expansion in hunting's popularity was nonetheless significant. While only 16% of American men purchased hunting licenses before the war, that figure soon rose to more than 25% afterwards accounting for nearly 13 million sportsmen in the late 1940s and early 1950s. This growth continued well beyond the immediate post-war years. According to state officials in Michigan, by the 1960s, the number of resident hunters in proportion to the state's population had expanded to seven times what it had been in 1920. Montana's license sales doubled between 1940 and 1950. In order to explain such interest, Outdoor Life's editors claimed that shared wartime experiences played a large role. In one article, they argued that, quote, you can't expose millions of young men to the enjoyments of outdoor living and the fascination of using firearms without making hunters out of them. Other underlying factors help explain the phenomenon as well. In the wake of the Second World War, hunting offered American men an essential source of gender identification and a rather straightforward substitute for the intimate types of friendships they'd forged by military service. Taking to the woods presented returning GIs with a uniformly masculine social environment in a nation where women had become an increasingly visible part of the workforce. Hunting magazines throughout the early post-war era emphasized the importance of men's, quote, shared experiences both on the battlefield 
and in the hunting field. And while much of this interest was self-directed, it was also deliberately cultivated. During the war and into the late 1940s, many states began introducing free and steeply discounted licenses for veterans and servicemen, but not, as we might expect, purely out of patriotic gratitude. Conservation groups, in fact, pushed for these policies as a means of building on and solidifying popular support for the achievements of the prior decades. In an editorial calling for the expansion of hunting opportunities for returning soldiers, Outdoor Life's Raymond Brown argued quite plainly that, quote, getting servicemen interested in wildlife is a sound conservation measure. In a number of ways, hunting was not unique among recreational activities in the affluent society of the post-war era. The same factors that fueled its surge in popularity among a swelling middle class, rising incomes, growing purchasing power, and expanded leisure time also led Americans to hike, swim, camp, boat, and explore the outdoors in record numbers. The interstate highway system and increased rates of automobile ownership rendered the nation's coastlines, mountains, and forests physically more accessible. The paid vacation, standard in many of the generous labor contracts of the post-war era, made such destinations financially possible. Hunting, however, differed from these other activities in its unusual homogeneity. New sportsmen throughout the nation fit a common profile, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, and overwhelmingly employed in fields of skilled, semi-skilled, and unskilled labor. A report published by the Bureau of Outdoor Recreation, a short-lived federal agency, likewise held that hunting was an activity practiced almost exclusively by males with the highest rates of participation in suburban and rural areas in the South, the Midwest, and the West. In other words, while hunting's popularity exploded all across the nation, the phenomenon was especially visible among certain demographics and in certain parts of the country. For this reason, hunting season seemed to turn everyday life on its head in certain parts of the post-war United States. Newspaper accounts from the period described factories and businesses shutting their doors for lack of workers and, quote, whole suburban families marooned because the family car is hauling deer hunters north. In Pennsylvania, houses burned while firefighters stalked the woods in search of game, and in upstate New York, courts postponed cases until key witnesses returned from the field. The hunting boom revealed itself in sometimes unexpected places as well. The syndicated column Deer Abbey, which first appeared in the 1950s, offered a small but colorful glimpse into the various challenges, points of confusion, and sources of conflict in the lives of anonymous Americans. Letters to Deer Abbey printed during the mid to late 1950s suggest that many American families were learning how to negotiate the challenges presented by each fall's hunting season. Housewives around the country expressed dismay at their husband's sudden and inexplicable interest in loading up the family car with guns and gear only to disappear into the woods for weeks at a time. Men voiced their concerns as well, wondering how they might most effectively convince their significant others that deer hunting was worth their absence from home. This was an especially challenging proposition, as one husband discovered, when opening day happened to be the due date for what he described, perhaps inadvisably, as, quote, her second baby. <laughs> In some cases, school districts closed down for the duration of hunting season, but not necessarily as we might expect so that children could join their fathers afield for some old-fashioned family bonding. 
Instead, as one superintendent in Columbia, Missouri explained to a local newspaper, the decision had been made to, quote, keep the children from being shot by deer hunters as the youngsters were waiting along the roads to board school buses. Although a bit over the top, <clears throat> the superintendent's fears were not unfounded. Skyrocketing rates of accidental shootings in the immediate post-war decades suggest not only the overcrowding of popular hunting areas, but also the unfamiliarity of many American men with their new hobby. Casualties of field escalated dramatically in the post-war years. While only 140 Americans were killed by hunters' gunshots in 1947, the 1949 to 1950 season saw 390 hunters killed. The following year, another 340 lost their lives. Um, and as a point of comparison, the best data I could find in a recent five-year period showed a national average rate of hunting uh, fatalities from shooting at around 30. Uh, so I think this is a useful reminder that the good old days weren't always quite as idyllic as we like to imagine. Throughout the 1950s, local newspapers ran stories with headlines like, How to Hunt Without Getting Yourself Shot. Outdoor writers in local papers, with no hint of irony, expressed their, quote, hopes that the casualties would be high among the deer and low among the hunters, and provided weekly updates on hunter death tolls throughout the season. One January day in 1947, a Montana warden working near Gardner checked 230 elk taken by hunters, and in the same day he came upon three hunters who'd been shot by others. Perhaps uh, most astonishingly, in 1956, Sports Illustrated estimated, in all seriousness, that the year's human hunting fatalities would exceed the combined national harvest of moose, mountain goats, bighorn sheep, and buffalo. A Saturday Evening Post article titled Boobs in the Woods, penned by the director of Indiana's Department of Conservation, Donald Fultz, clearly revealed the mounting frustration of many officials with the incompetency of the average hunter calling for the implementation of more stringent licensing requirements and harsher penalties for careless triggermen, Fultz bemoaned the fact that his agency issued hunting permits to, quote, even the feeble-minded or the half-blind. The observation was not much of an exaggeration. Recent studies of the American public, in part spurred on by data from wartime medical records, revealed that some 8% of, of the population suffered from some degree of colorblindness. By the National Rifle Association's estimate, there are as many as 1.5 million men afield each fall unable to discern the color red, which had traditionally been worn for safety. Accidental shootings afield became prevalent enough to justify military intervention. In 1958, the U.S. Army's 38th Infantry, in cooperation with the California-based Association of Optometrists and the National Rifle Association, as well as the state wildlife agencies of Washington, Oregon, and California, participated in the delightfully named Operation Rainbow. Soldiers, most were hunters, noted an account of the test, were tasked with identifying different colored panels at various distances as they marched through typical California deer country and the Olympic National Forest Elk Preserve. A 1959 follow-up operation conducted in Massachusetts by troops from the Strategic Army Command eventually determined that fluorescent orange was most likely to prevent accidental shootings, as even partially colorblind individuals were able to perceive its dominant wavelength. Subsequent state regulations mandating that hunters wear a hat or jacket in this color 
Massachusetts passed the first such law three years later in 1962, gave rise to a new cottage industry in garments of the now ubiquitous blaze orange. State fish and wildlife agencies responded to the crisis of hunter safety in other ways. In 1948, the state of New York instituted the first mandatory hunter safety course with particular emphasis on safe firearm handling. Other states followed throughout the 1950s. As an illustrative example, Utah instituted mandatory hunter training after a record-setting hunting season that saw 126 hunters shot, 22 of whom died. In many cases, these courses were only initially required for youth hunters and encouraged for adults. But soon, over time, many states instituted some mandatory form of safety training for all. Although they generated the most headlines, <clears throat> accidental shootings were not the only problem created by the swelling numbers of inexperienced sportsmen. In fact, a whole new set of complications arose when bullets found their intended target. One of the most frequently recurring conundrums presented by hunting that made its way into Deer Abbey was what to do with the harvested animals themselves. Many American women had no idea what to do with the dead creatures that suddenly began appearing in their driveways, cellars, and garages. Moreover, they complained to Abby that their husbands were not of any help in resolving the issue. One reader wrote that she hadn't cooked any of her husbands last year, and the imminent prospect of yet another animal no doubt prompted her November letter. Another perplexed reader, at a loss for why her husband would want to drive 600 miles each year to shoot a deer, remarked, neither Melvin nor I like venison, so what's the point? Abby confidently replied that no man went hunting because he likes venison. And I think this is surprising. In contrast to the ways in which wild game consumption is represented in contemporary culture, for many sportsmen in the post-war era, the results of a successful hunt seemed to have been a mixed bag. Hunters and outdoor journalists very commonly wrote about the prospect of dealing with a dead animal as if it were a regrettable consequence of their hobby. One sports writer for a Texas newspaper argued that problems of the hunter often begin with success in the field. Along similar lines, one headline suggested that the initial delight at shooting a deer is often the last hurrah. One sports writer in Spokane noted that even few men, even among the deer huntingist group, enjoyed the taste of venison. These sentiments and countless others like them from newspapers and magazines throughout the period suggest that many sportsmen at the time saw the successful harvest of an animal as something of a paradox. One writer warned new hunters that the excitement of the hunt would soon become, quote, puzzlement in the kitchen. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, experts and observers throughout the post-war decades acknowledged that a huge amount of wild game went to waste. One agricultural economist from Michigan State University asserted to reporters that, quote, much of the game shot will never reach the family table. Similar claims appeared in a variety of publications. A 1950 article in Good Housekeeping claimed that although millions of hunting licenses were sold each year, quote, only a small percentage of the game bagged is cooked and eaten. One columnist in the Chicago Daily Tribune claimed that despite hunting's popularity, venison has almost entirely disappeared from the American table. Government agencies at various levels, concerned with the waste of public resources, began programmatic efforts to encourage new hunters to consume their game. Many states began to implement wanton waste laws, and a federal wanton waste law for waterfowl was introduced in 1956. State wildlife and agricultural offices throughout the country 
began a massive educational campaign about the care and proper preparation of wild game. Extension services from Pennsylvania to Oregon produced pamphlets assuring hunters that, as one claimed, quote, when deer are properly dressed, correctly cooked, and attractively served, venison can serve as a palatable addition to the family menu. In a letter to Ira Gabrielson, the president of the Wildlife Management Institute, the Kansas-based outdoor writer Roy Wall argued that this type of outreach work by state agencies and conservation groups was vital, as, quote, the proper care of game in the field was a practice practically unknown to the average sportsman. One of the more colorful examples of these efforts was undertaken in Missouri, where the state conservation agency began publishing a cookbook under the title Cy Littleby's Guide to Cooking Fish and Game. Werner Nagel, a state zoologist, wrote the book in the voice of the title character, Cy Littleby, a plain-speaking font of folksy wisdom. In the introduction, Littleby suggests that we'd better start with venison because deer hunting, quote, is still kind of new, and a lot of folks is getting deer now that never had a chance to cook it before. Quote, if we really knowed the amount of wildlife wasted, it'd be big enough to make your eyes stick out like a bullfrog's. And I think that this characterization of deer hunting as new should encourage us to consider the ways in which environmental change gave shape to this story. Throughout much of the early 20th century, white-tailed deer were simply not to be found throughout much of the country. In a 1980 interview, in a 1980 interview with Outdoor Life, Ronald Reagan, then a candidate, reminisced on his childhood in the town of Dixon, Illinois. Reagan recalled that a scarcity of game forced would-be hunters to drive to the furthest northern reaches of Wisconsin and Minnesota. In fact, he, quote, didn't know of anyone who had ever seen a deer in Illinois. Returning to his home state in the late 1970s, it was a shock for the soon-to-be president to hear that deer had become so abundant they posed a serious threat to the rose bushes of neighborhood gardens. Reagan's memories reflected the ecological reality in much of the United States. In the 1920s and 1930s, biologists estimated that there were fewer than 500,000 white-tailed deer in the country. Populations of deer and other game animals throughout the nation had been decimated by intensive habitat destruction and exploitative market hunting in the late 1800s. The imposition of regulations, scientific management practices, and the closure of hunting seasons in many states led to a rapid recovery that accelerated in the post-war decades. Only a few decades later, nearly 15 million deer roamed the American landscape, providing new opportunities for American hunters. To be sure, evidence suggests that there, were greater, there was greater continuity in the consumption habits of rural hunters and hunters from families with established traditions. Bulletins from local newspapers throughout the country suggest communal meals were an essential means of consuming the meat from big game. Venison suppers, hosted by churches and schools, often featuring a buck freshly killed by the pastor or principal, were a mainstay of the social calendar in small-town America. These events not only reinforced community ties, but they also fulfilled a logistical purpose. They offered a means by which deer and elk could be consumed quickly. And here I think it's important to consider the role of technology in the evolving habits of sportsmen. Although half of American kitchens in 1940 were home to a refrigerator, and by 1950 that figure would exceed 80%, home freezers remained a far rarer technology. In the summer of 1944, 
Time Magazine reported in rather striking language that food technologists predicted the post-war era would witness the triumph of, quote, the quick freeze craze. Tellingly, the magazine described one of the individuals featured in the article as a, quote, propagandist who had organized a small but fanatical cult of U.S. citizens who own home freezers. Clearly, the editors at time remained skeptical. And in fact, statistics suggest that their disbelief was prescient, as the quick freeze boom did not immediately take off. According to the 1960 census, only 18% of U.S. households owned a home freezer, compared to the more than 90% of American households that had a refrigerator by that time. However, between 1960 and 1965, sales of home freezers exceeded 1 million per year, increasing the number of these appliances by more than 50% in five short years. For many in the immediate post-war era, the lack of a home freezer had determined the way wild game meat was used. As one Outdoor Life columnist noted, many successful hunters give away most of their game. The Chicago Tribune's Bob Becker similarly observed that hunters who traveled to the north woods of the, mid of the Midwest usually are served a lot of venison in camp. Those, quote, lucky enough to shoot a buck, he wrote, usually had to, quote, eat, eat all he could right away and then give away the rest. In many parts of the country, the law, in fact, required sportsmen to do just that as a means of enforcing seasonal restrictions on harvest. In the immediate post-war years, all but 12 states imposed time limits on the legal possession of game meat. 18 states forbade hunters from possessing any wild game more than 10 days after the close of the season. And for residents of Indiana, Kentucky, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Vermont, and West Virginia, consuming an animal that one had killed was only permitted during the legal hunting season for that animal. Such laws rendered the prospect of hunting to feed one's family year-round a problematic proposition at best. For the Chicago Tribune's Becker and other observers, the use of a home freezing unit represented a, quote, revolutionary conservation measure. Likewise, a 1955 article from the Saturday Evening Post heralded the miraculous way in which freezer meat and which freezers might allow the preservation of meat from big game animals. These writers, however, were only suggesting what appliance manufacturers had long been eagerly envisioning, a nation of sportsmen freezing their accumulated harvests. In a 1949 article published in the Washington Post and the New York Times, one industry leader argued that the home freezer would soon become a, quote, vital element of hunting equipment. With a home freezer, a man no longer had to, quote, dash around town unloading game meat on friends before spoilage occurred. Throughout subsequent decades, freezer manufacturers continued to emphasize the utility of their products to hunters. One promotion for General Electric featured a pair of deer requesting to be wrapped up in a GE freezer. They reminded hunters that such a machine would allow them to enjoy their game year-round. Similarly, in a 1952 full-page ad, the manufacturer Deep Freeze Home Appliances asked Field and Stream readers, what's the sense, Mr. Sportsman, if your family can't eat it? Now, these home freezers that represented the dawning of a new day for many hunters <clears throat> were emblematic of a much larger shift that we associate with the post-war era, widespread material prosperity. However, as one outdoor life columnist observed, superhighways and supermarkets, industrial expansion, and urban sprawl are the mixed blessings of a prospering USA. 
Significantly, this period dramatically reshaped the physical landscape of the nation as new patterns of development, fueled by Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration loans, as well as a rising standard of living, gave rise to suburban life. Planned communities sprang up seemingly overnight in a boom that saw more than a million new housing starts annually between the late 1940s and into the 1950s. Highways, too, extended their reach across the country, facilitating the development of previously rural spaces and resulting in a massive proliferation of roadside billboards. Not all the changes were quite so visible. The millions of pounds of synthetic pesticides, fertilizers, and plastics produced annually in the post-war period were also quickly transforming the chemical composition of the American environment. At the same time, a massive expansion in, the automobile, in automobile ownership introduced the word smog to the popular lexicon as clouds of noxious fumes hung over cities such as Los Angeles. As an expanding middle class increasingly conserved itself with quality of life issues, its own environmental footprint quickly grew evident. Hunting's growing popularity at this particular moment of environmental change is particularly important in that it familiarized and rededicated millions of Americans to the critical work of conservation, and it plugged them into networks, models, and associations established by an earlier generation of sportsmen. And I'll focus here particularly on the role of magazines like Field and Stream and Outdoor Life in this work. Founded around the same time as the influential Boone and Crockett Club, national sportsmen's periodicals such as Forest and Stream, first published in 1873, Field and Stream, 1874, Sports of Field, 1887, and Outdoor Life, 1898, were some of the most influential organs of an emerging conservation ethic at the end of the 19th century. As hunting's popularity expanded in the post-war era, so too did the readership of these magazines. Outdoor life and field and stream saw a boost in circulation of more than 400% between 1940 and the early 1960s. For much of the second half of the 20th century, they each had a guaranteed circulation of around 2 million, with a combined readership of 15 to 20 million. Millions of the nation's new sportsmen turned to these periodicals to learn about their new hobby, how-to advice and information on the latest equipment taught beginners the skills and knowledge needed for proficiency in the field. Editorials, stories of adventure, and letters to the editor allowed readers to encounter the ideas and traditions of other hunters from all across the country. These magazines served as a vital public sphere in which many came to understand the values and meanings of their new pastime. Among the various dimensions of hunting's public culture promoted by these magazines, Civic participation in environmental protection was a point of particular emphasis. Editors and writers deliberately sought to translate the heightened popularity of hunting into a sense of obligation among their readership in matters pertaining to the environment. Perhaps the most noteworthy and straightforward example of these efforts was Outdoor Life's 1946 $5,000 conservation pledge competition. The magazine offered a cash prize for the best 30-word oath to encourage Americans to protect the nation's natural resources. The response was so overwhelming that the contest judges took nearly two years to sort through and debate the relative merits of various submissions. And the second prize winner of that famously is Rachel Carson, who at the time was a biologist and uh, would go on later to write Silent Spring. 
Um, but that was one of her first main publishing successes. She won $1,000, and uh, prior to that, her only book had earned her, uh, like f I think, f $500 in royalties over 10 years of publication. So it was obviously a memorable experience for Rachel Carson. Um, in subsequent years, at events hosted by local sportsmen's clubs, hundreds of thousands of hunters and non-hunters alike memorized the winning promise, pledging, quote, as an American to save and faithfully to defend the nation's soil and minerals, its forests, waters, and wildlife. One such rally at the Civic Auditorium in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1950 saw 3,500 sportsmen raise their right hands in unison and recite the affirmation together. Throughout the late 1940s and early 1950s, sportsmen's associations throughout the nation ordered posters and framed copies of the pledge to distribute throughout their communities. Local clubs purchased copies to hang in school classrooms. One organization in North Dakota ordered 4,000 posters with the intention of hanging one in every classroom in the state. Outdoor Life distributed stickers, wallet-sized cards, rubber stamps, iron-on garment stickers, and other accessories in order to further spread the message. The magazine's editors took great pride in claiming that prior to the pledge, quote, there were practically no conservation education projects in which entire communities could participate. This model of grassroots mobilization, I think, more closely resembled in many ways the type of civic participation we associate with the mid-20th century's environmental movement than it did the top-down type of conservation established in the progressive era. Evidence suggests that American hunters embraced this mission. One early and particularly well-known example took place in Michigan, where post-war industrial growth improved the standard of living enjoyed by blue-collar workers, but also produced overwhelming volumes of air and water pollution. Witnessing the degradation of local lakes, rivers, and marshes, Local sportsmen coordinated advo advocacy efforts through the Michigan United Conservation Clubs, while Jack Van Covering, the Detroit Free Press's outdoor columnist, amplified their concerns. National periodicals such as Sports Afield soon covered the controversy, which led to a landmark 1949 water pollution law that earned Michigan widespread recognition. As this example suggests, these types of campaigns drew their energy from local and individual concerns but national associations and periodicals gave them structure and extended their influence. Hunting magazines in the post-war era frequently served to coordinate grassroots activism at the local level. Key in this regard was the creation of Outdoor Life's regional inserts in the 1950s, which quickly became forums for spreading awareness of issues affecting communities. Local correspondents highlighted developing controversies and provided other readers with information on how to affect policy in their own backyards. Sportsmen also used these magazines to share concerns and strategies for affecting change. In 1955, Field and Stream printed a series of letters in which readers proposed different ideas for picking up and preventing pollution in their communities. In another instance, a letter to the editor printed in Outdoor Life asked readers in Wisconsin to report instances of water pollution that they encountered while they were afield. With the aid of a local sporting goods store, sportsmen would then compile the reports into a statewide map of environmental degradation that would be forwarded along to state policymakers. Outdoor Life's editor, Ben East, labeled the effort, quote, one of the most novel and perhaps effective anti-pollution campaigns ever undertaken anywhere. 
and hoped that it would be replicated by other sportsmen across the country. Significantly, in their attempts to spread the gospel of conservation to new hunters, outdoor writers and editors emphasized the unique and productive relationship in the form of licensing, regulation, and public lands that had developed over the preceding decades between private sportsmen and public authorities. In one 1946 column, Outdoor Life's Ben East explained how hunters' licensing fees and federal waterfowl permits had translated into effective government action. You marched up cheerfully, he told his readers, and laid your dough on the line, convinced with few exceptions that it's needed and glad to kick in. Without hesitation, East declared that you and I and the rest of us have had our money's worth. Likewise, Outdoor Life's Arthur Graham emphasized that hunters, when checked by a game warden, should hand over their license with an answering smile that has a touch of pride in it. You have paid your dues. In another piece, Graham noted that sportsmen are different, quote, from the ranks of good citizens who pay their taxes but think of them as an unavoidable headache. Hunters, Graham wrote, are, quote, the only people who actually want to be taxed and the only ones who ever suggest to lawmakers that their taxes should in fact be raised. With sentiments such as these, Outdoor magazines fostered and popularized a modern sportsman's identity that emphasized civic engagement as much as rugged individualism. And while it certainly wasn't new to this period, such an ethos enjoyed new vitality as it was embraced by millions of American men in whose lives government had played an outsized role through the years of the Depression and the war. Um, and so to wrap up, um, what I've tried to do tonight is just to sketch out a few interesting threads of the post-war hunting story and highlight some of the ways in which it gave shape to the story of hunting in the United States. I'd suggest that this period was perhaps more influential than is often acknowledged and that it challenges some of our assumptions about hunting's evolving place in American life. While not as revolutionary a moment as, say, the turn-of-the-century conservation movement, the surge of this, that's a surge. The, the surge of interest in the sport following the Second World War bolstered and built upon pre-existing traditions, but also produced new and perhaps unexpected developments that today now seem familiar. As we think about hunting in America today and its future, it's critical to recognize both continuity and change and to consider the various influences that give hunting its shape and meaning at any particular moment in time. Thank you. <laughs>